stew in the out of three. It reminded me of that. Funny how little things like that can come back. Uh, I got some news uh, regarding uh, Living Church of God, or at least Rob Meredith lost his wife, I think it was last evening, uh, from cancer. Uh, and in fact, this is the second time that's happened to Rob Meredith. His first wife, Margie, as I recall, well, that was clear back in the probably the early 70s, had died of cancer, I believe, as well. And he had married again, and now this wife has died of cancer. So it's been a pretty tough time for him. Uh, so you might send up a word. Uh, I think you well know that I do not believe that we're the only group of God's people on the face of the earth by any means, that God has true people scattered throughout. The scriptures are very clear on that. So, uh, they, are, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of whether they're with us or not. Although, not everybody looks at it that way. They think they're exclusive. But I don't think we see that in the Bible at all. So, you might remember him and his family. And I heard Leroy Neff also, one of the uh, original leading men or ministers from Pasadena, is also getting way up in years, and he's fallen and had some troubles as well. So I don't wish ill on any of these people, but uh, do hope that God delivers and that not only does he gather 10% as he says he will, but even many of those who he doesn't call to build the latter temple will also uh, change during the tribulation or... Uh, maybe they have enough of a record over the years that they'll be in the first resurrection regardless of whether they're a part of the very end-time work or not. Who knows? That's God's judgment. But certainly we need to be uh, aware of and concerned with any whom God has called. It's tough for any of us to be what we need to be and be where we need to be and do what we need to do to please God in every way that we possibly can. And others are trying as well. So uh, our love and concern and consideration and prayers need to be offered for them as well when, when we become aware of things that might be happening here and there. And I think that's about it in terms of announcements, so let's get back to Deuteronomy, this extension of the feast. We're down to chapter 21 uh, today. He goes through quite a few things in the next few chapters here, uh, which should be logically understood, I guess, uh, but he lays down directions and instructions of what to do in certain circumstances. And really, all of this comes under the heading of loving our neighbor as ourselves, because it gives foresight and direction in how we are to handle certain situations and that's the bottom line, really, on all of it. But God takes quite a little time in Scripture to explain certain things specifically in how we ought to treat one another. Uh, and then we need to be able to take these principles and apply them to other areas of life, some modern areas of life where uh, we may not have, or they did not have some of the things that we happen to have. 
uh, like last week, I discussed various things in the, that can be idols, such as the electronics world, uh, that they didn't have back then, but the same principles that are here apply today to be utilized in terms of whatever uh, might be there for us to idolize today. So, it's a matter of taking the principle. That's why we need to meditate and think on God's Word and see how does this apply to our situation, to my situation, and how I handle things. Anyway, let's go on here in chapter 21. <clears throat> if one be found slain in the land, which eternal your God gives you to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who has slain him. It would be like uh, no suspects, uh, or like a cold case where maybe been laying there for a week or ten days, or who knows, depending on where it was, if it's in a ditch, maybe six months before he's even found. So there were no suspects and no one that was known perhaps to hate the person that you'd go to and say, hey, uh, but it's just not known. Well, there was a procedure there because there is culpability some way. A murder, a sin, had been committed in Israel and no one knew which human being might have done it. So he gave instructions here so that uh, responsibility and accountability be given in some part, even though the perpetrator might not be specifically punished. Then the elders and your judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next to the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take a heifer which has not been worked with, which has not drawn in the yoke. So they were to actually step off or measure which city was the closest. Uh, that would be perhaps as close as you could get to determining where the murderer might be. So he simply made the nearest city uh, responsible for this situation. Now remember there are times in the Bible, many times, where God holds us personally accountable for whatever. And he does not hold others accountable. But there are some specific circumstances when uh, specific crimes or rebellions uh, occur that God would hold the whole nation responsible. In the case of Achan, where God had told the whole nation not to take any of the spoils of that war, and he did. And the whole tribe, the whole nation, suffered until that was discovered and recompense was given to the perpetrator in that case. So you have to analyze the circumstances of a situation to know where God might hold us all accountable and where he might just hold one accountable. In this case, he just laid it on the nearest city. And they had to bring this uh, heifer down as an offering. Verse 4, And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer to a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown. So, uh, more of a wilderness area, not a farming area. And shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. So, we, they were under eye for eye, tooth for tooth, uh, foot for foot, 
whatever. And in this case, uh, the heifer had to die in that they couldn't find the murderer who would have been stoned to death had they found the murderer. So a sacrifice needed to be made and a payment of some sort. Verse 5, And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them the Eternal, your God, has chosen to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Eternal. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. Now, we saw this same principle, I think it was last week or the week before. I think it was last week. Uh, where, yeah, we were discussing Matthew 18. Because some people have thought over the years that... Uh, after two or three witnesses, you're supposed to bring in the whole congregation and have them vote on whether somebody is guilty or not. And you do not find that anywhere in the Bible. And here is yet another attestation to that, that God had set the priests, the sons of Levi, to look into the matter, to come before God on it, and by their investigation and their word, shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. So they were to judge matters, and they were to assess punishment or strokes being given. So that is God's way of doing things, always has been. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There was government then, and there is government now. Now, why do I keep bringing this up? Well, because it's in the context for one thing, and because throughout the Church of God you have here and there uh, those who try to do away uh, with authority in the church. And you simply cannot do it. Uh, it is anti-biblical, uh, anti-God, and anti-the church to do so. Verse 7, And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. So they will ask if there are any witnesses. Is there anyone who knows or could could give information regarding this murder. Well, they were supposed to look into it and assess uh, blame if they could find it. And the elders then would come before God and, and they would attest that they had not done this, couldn't figure out who it was, so then they would address God and say, Be merciful, O Eternal, to your people Israel whom you have redeemed, and lay not innocent blood to your people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. So even though they couldn't find the guilty party, God held the society or culture to some degree culpable here. So once they had looked into it, then they could approach God and ask for forgiveness for everyone that this somehow had happened within Israel, should not have, but it had, and God could then forgive so that the nation or all the people wouldn't suffer for the sin of one who had shed blood. So God does, to some degree, hold us all accountable. We are our brother's keeper to a degree when it comes time to pay. Now, that gives us good reason, does it not, to encourage, to strengthen, to help, to uh, set a right example for each other so that all of us might live according to God's way 
And therefore, we not all suffer for perhaps the sin of one or two or three or five or whoever might be involved in something uh, that God would hold us all accountable for to some degree. Sometimes he did that, and this is an example of it. Verse 9, So shall you put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the eternal. So he would be willing to forgive all. Now, God knew all along who did it, didn't he? But he wants to be sure that accountability is given when accountability should be given, and responsibility. Well, responsibility and then accountability. (coughs) Verse 10, uh, When you go forth to war against your enemies, and the eternal your God has delivered them into your hands, and you shall have taken them captive... And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire to her, that you should would have her to your wife. Oh, that was a possibility that would occur, and often did, I'm sure. Uh, So he had rules regarding that in terms of proper conduct in that case. Uh, Verse 12, Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head, and pare her nails, my margin says, uh, suffer to grow her nails, not cut them or pare them, but the Hebrew apparently indicates that she would not cut them. But she did shave her head. I don't know whether the Hebrew there is correct or not. If you shave the head off, maybe you uh, also shave the nails or cut the nails off. I, that's just what my Hebrew says. It says, make her nails. Shave her head and make her nails. Or suffer to grow. No, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, she was to go through a process. And she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, and shall remain in your house. Now, why couldn't she go ahead and wear the clothes that she had had before? You were bringing her out of another nation. She was to be brought into... Uh, the culture of Israel and the society of Israel. And if she was to start a new life there, A, for her, she needed to begin to forget that which was behind because it would affect her in the future. And also, uh, God has made it very clear that he did not want uh, wrong teaching, wrong garments, wrong uh, procedures or habits to be instilled within Israel. So there could have been a number of reasons why uh, she would put away the raiment of her captivity. And also, uh, she should be acceptable to the society around, both the husband, his family, and the rest of Israel. She wouldn't wear her old clothing from back there as a reminder that she had been brought in as a captive or as a slave to be made a wife. In other words, the sooner that could be forgotten, the better it would be for her. And I think that principle is certainly true in this nation, where we have brought peoples in from other places or allowed them to come here and assimilate into the society. But we have had ways for a long, long time of reminding people where they came from and what their state had been. 
such as slavery and the racism that goes with that. Now, of course, racism goes both directions and shouldn't be there in any case, but uh, a lot of people in our nation to this day are not going to allow uh, black people to get past the slavery that they were put under. Not willingly, but put under just like this woman. So I think it's saying, cut that off. Don't let that survive. Except bring this woman in and make her a part of things so that she fits in and looks the same in terms of clothes and everything else. And then if they had different hairstyles, maybe when her hair grew back, uh, she would start using the style of the Israelites around her. So she assimilated better into the society. Anyway, uh, God wasn't going to make her forget immediately everything, uh, but it needed to be put behind her. So it says she'll remain in your house and bewail or mourn her father and her mother a full month, and after that you shall go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. So you didn't touch her for 30 days. You let her have a period of mourning for her parents who had probably been killed in the war, and she was taken captive. Uh, when Moses died in chapter 34, verse 8, it says there that Israel mourned him for 30 days. So God allows, because of emotion and difficulty, that person, the peace, the safety, the opportunity to deal with the loss. And even though she was not an Israelite, she had the same period of time that God had set as a period of mourning uh, in Israel. She got that opportunity. So, after a full month, uh, the man who had brought her in could take her as his wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall let her go where she will. She's free to go. You don't want her. You decided, oh, this was just a, a, a little thing that I had, and she looked good, but she's sure hard to live with. Uh, you, and you didn't want her for whatever reason. You could put her away, but she was free to go. You had no more hold on her. She could go wherever she wanted, within Israel society or somewhere else. She could leave. But you shall not sell her at all for money. Now, they did have slavery, and they bought and sold people during that period of time in Israel's history. And even in the New Testament, we find record of Paul uh, giving directions as how to sl slaves and slave owners should treat each other, even within the church, because it still existed. And they were not made to put their slaves away, but they were given directions as to how to treat them. But in this case... Even though you had brought her home and in one sense owned her, you had also brought her there to be a wife. And therefore, if you decided, after having given her that status, that you didn't want her anymore, you could put her away, but you couldn't take money for her. She was free to go and do as she pleased. Now you wonder, well, why did God allow all these things in the Old Testament? We'll get back to divorce here in chapter 24 and so on. And Christ explained that very clearly in Matthew 19. He said, Moses allowed these things because of the hardness of your hearts. 
And in the beginning, it was not so. He had intended one man, one woman, to live together until death did them part. And they weren't allowed to kill each other and make that a shorter period either. I say that tongue-in-cheek. But God had an original intent. And because Israel had trouble following God's ways, rather than having to destroy them or quit using them at all at times, uh, he allowed certain things for the hardness of their heart, and sometimes they learned some pretty hard lessons from it as well. It didn't go too well. So that's why this was allowed. Anyway, you don't sell her at all for money. You shall not make merchandise of her because you have humbled her. And verse 15 then changes the subject. Well, actually, let me make a comment there. See, God required, even though these may not have been the best rules or the best way to live, they were hard-hearted and they wanted to do their thing their way, but God required that they show a certain respect, a certain, certain uh, good way of treating someone that they brought in, even under these circumstances. So respect needed to be shown. Uh, we need to show respect to all kinds of people, all kinds of circumstances that they might be in, and not mistreat anyone. So, even with someone who was in slave category, God regulated, even as Paul did in the New Testament as well. Anyway, verse 15, If a man have two wives, one beloved, another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated. Now you see the dilemma here. You don't like this woman, but she had your first son. Uh, you'd, like, you'd rather give a double portion to the other woman's son because you like her and the son better. But God regulates it. Then it shall be, when he makes his son to inherit that which he has, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn, in fact. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now, that was the rule God made so that they would not show favoritism in a wrong way. Uh, God himself did make exception to that. I remember Reuben was the firstborn. But because Reuben was unstable, uh, God changed things around. And Ephraim got the greater blessing, or Joseph did. So God makes these rules, uh, and we should follow them. Not that we're into polygamy now, but uh, he laid down circumstances whereby that should be regulated under those circumstances. So, fairness is the key word here. Verse 18, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, that would be a, a rare circumstance, would it not be, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, 
that when they have chastened him, will not hearken to them. So you have this child, and he is supposed to be obedient, he or she, and God requires that. To honor your father and your mother, both, is the fifth of the Ten Commandments, of the Big Ten. So honor to a parent is very, very high on the list of things that every human being should do. There is a much larger picture in honoring our Father in heaven. There is another picture of honoring our fathers in the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others. And there is a personal responsibility to honor our physical father and mother. Are they always honorable? Do they always do everything right? No. Do they make mistakes? Yes. But we are supposed to honor them and respect them for the position that they hold, for the experiences they have been through and what they have learned in life and what they know of God. So we have a responsibility laid on us, even as children, to honor our parents. Now, was this a serious matter or just something you say in a child-rearing sermon? Let's read on. Have one who will not listen to his father or his mother. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him by the collar, by the ear, whatever it takes, and bring him to the elders of his city and to the gate of his place. Here again, not to the majority of the congregation, but to the elders. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. He's a drug user. He's an abuser of alcohol. He's whatever he is, stubborn and rebellious, and will not follow what we say. Problem child, in other words. Will not respect what his parents say. Now, in today's society, we might say, we might not either, we might put up with it, we might try to live with it, uh, but probably the worst we would do would be, say, pack your bags and hit the road, Jack, uh, which in some cases ought to be done. I had one of my children at one time tell me that uh, she did not uh, want to really be part of the church, but she, well, the main thing about it, she wanted to take a job where she worked on Saturday. So she came to me and said, should I move out of the house since I'm going to do this? And I said, yeah, I think so. Uh, if you're not going to honor and keep the Sabbath that we do, and I'm a minister in the church, uh, I think that would probably be a wise idea. But she wasn't going to do what we would wish. She was going to do what she wanted, but I appreciated the fact that she had enough respect and honor about her that she would come and say, should I move out? I think she was 18. And I said, I thought that would be a good idea, and then I went and helped her find a place to live. She's still my daughter, 
still loved her, still cared about her, but it was best for the family under those circumstances that she be elsewhere. And she recognized that. Now, I would have had a different problem had she gotten her back up and said, I don't care what you say, I'm going to go work on Saturday. What are you going to do about it? You know, or that kind of attitude. And then I probably would have reacted stronger than I did, and I would probably have said, you need to go live somewhere else. I'm not going to live with that attitude. So we might go that far if we can stand it. You know, we, we have emotion for our children. And uh, even though sometimes we know what needs to be done deep down inside, we don't want to go there uh, because of the emotion we feel for them. But is it true love? Or is it us clinging? Anyway, God had a solution if you had one that was stubborn and rebellious and would not obey and then had issues. Uh, we have drunk kids in the world today. We have drug users. We have fornicators. We have different types of sins that occur uh, where they're being rebellious and not living the way we have taught them to live. Well, in this case, when you brought him to the elders uh, and they looked into the matter and saw that, yes, you're telling the truth, uh, this, uh, this child is that way, Verse 21, all the men of this city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shall you put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now that was God's way of love, believe it or not. Doesn't sound lovely. Doesn't sound good. Sounds bad having to stone a rebellious son to death. But the whole point was that the rest of Israel would hear and fear so that that kind of conduct would stop. If you knew that if you rebelled against your father or mother and you were going to be taken out and stoned to death and you had seen someone get stoned for that, then you might think twice before you started using drugs or too much alcohol or various things that kids get into so easily, it seems, in our society today. Why? They're not afraid to go there. They know nothing will happen. One of my kids one time I suspected was smoking, so I went to the school and I asked the principal to open up the locker and I wanted to see if there were any cigarettes there. Lo and behold, she opened the locker and I started feeling in the pockets and I found this little bag of, not cigarettes, called marijuana. Of course, that was high contraband in a school. And the principal looked at me in shock and horror and says, what are you going to do? I suspected she was expecting me to say, oh, let's cover this up, let's forget about this, let's not do anything, Uh, I'll take care of it, don't say anything, is what she was expecting. I said, call the state troopers. She says, really? 
Yeah, I'll call the state troopers. It's marijuana. It's illegal for her to have it. So we went to her office and called the trooper. And she had that child come in, sit down. And when the trooper arrived, I told him what had happened. And he looked like this is unusual. And I said, no, this is wrong. She shouldn't have been doing this. Uh, so he booked her, or whatever he did, or this child, uh, whichever one it was, and uh, had to go through all kinds of classes and videos and community service and various things. Didn't go to jail, first offense. I didn't expect that it would happen. But uh, hopefully learned something from it. I don't know for sure. <laughs> but maybe learned something. Yeah, I could have tried to cover it up but I felt that the individual needed to learn. I was reminded of my granddad, who used to bail his drunken sons out of the county jail time after time. And I avowed myself as a 12, 13-year-old boy, if I ever had any children in jail, uh, I wouldn't bail them out. So I taught them from the time they were little guys, if you go to jail and you did something that put you there, you're staying. I'm not going to bail you out. And sure enough, eventually, once, a couple of them went to jail. And I went and visited them. And I put $100 in each of their kitty for toothpaste and whatever. And said, uh, I'll see you when you get out. Now that sounds hard, perhaps. Sounds cold. But they needed to learn. And I had in my background an example of my drunken uncles who never did learn anything and kept being that way till the day they died because they kept getting bailed out. No, we need to be made accountable for the things we do. Now, there's time for mercy. There's time for forgiveness. And I gave them that, but I also let them take their punishment. When they were out, I was overjoyed and told them so and was happy to see them free and told them I hope they never went back. And they never did. At least so far. Now that's nothing compared to this. But if children are not brought up short and not taught to learn something from their rebellion and their disrespect, then there need to be some penalties given. We're not under an eye for an eye and a hand for a hand uh, administration of death today. We're under the spirit of God, the spirit of mercy and love and forgiveness. And yet, even though we might not stone them to death, they do need some kind of chastening, some type of, type of punishment, something strong enough that they will learn their lesson and not do that and to do the same. Sometimes actions we take may have enough built-in penalties if our attitude is right that we don't have to assess too much other punishment. That is something that has to be assessed by each circumstance and the attitudes that are involved. In other words, if there's a spirit of rebellion 
as in this case, it is always a much greater thing to deal with than if somebody simply makes a mistake or is tempted to do this or that or the other thing and and then they don't anymore, you know. It's one thing to maybe try a joint. It's yet another thing to have a habit and then to have an attitude about it. So we have to Israel to hear and fear. And the same is true today. The church is not under the administration of death, but the nation should be because God has not given the people of this nation the new covenant. They are still living as physical Israelites under the old covenant. And the nation has the authority to execute criminals. We have jails full of them, rapists and murders and various things. But if they went to speedy trial, not get to hold it out for 10 or 12 years, a speedy trial, as soon as the facts were in and they could be established that this had occurred, they would be executed in front of the populace, wherever they lived, immediately. Now, God gave the cities of refuge, as we covered, I think, last week, where they would have a chance to go there while the evidence was assimilated and they could have a proper trial, not have someone avenge the blood immediately who was angry. So, given a fair trial, would mistakes occasionally be made? Yeah, they would, just as they are today. And somebody who's been in jail for 20 or 30 years might be proved by DNA uh, not to have even been there. That happens once in a great while. So you would occasionally, perhaps, execute even an innocent person. But the point is, if every murderer and every rapist, every pedophile was immediately executed after a fair trial, you would think twice before you murdered or raped or molested children. And you would not have any repeat offenders. Just be all over with. So that the society could live with a reasonable expectation of peace and lack of this kind of crime. Now this was just personal habits here. Drunkenness or uh, glutton, eating too much. Not being able to control the self, in other words. They were to be stoned to death. Verse 22, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be, he be to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Now, there were different ways of executing. Uh, sometimes you stoned. Sometimes they hung them. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that your land be not defiled, which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance. So somebody sinned in such a way that they decided to hang them, then they were to take them down and bury them that same day, because that person was accursed, and as long as they hung on the tree, it was an example of that curse. 
So once the punishment is meted out, don't leave them hanging there, but take them and bury them and get them out of sight so that that curse and the memory of it could begin to diminish. Although the lesson, hopefully, would have been learned that you don't do what that man did or you'll get hung on a tree. If these rules had been followed, there would have been a lot less crime in Israel, and if they were followed today, there would be a lot less crime in America. But we don't follow them. We do a little bit here and there, but we don't follow them. Now, how is that love? Well, A, it lets that person keep from being a repeat offender, to live a life of crime, in other words, stops that. And it also allows peace in people to love one another, knowing that they don't have to worry about murder and rape. So it's showing love for the whole nation as opposed to just feelings for that one individual that relatives might have had. But they made the parents themselves, or God did, bring that rebellious child and direct that he be stoned. God, pretty tough sometimes, isn't he? But it's tough love. It's not hate. It's for the good of the society. So we have to remember the good of all as opposed to mollycoddling of one which our nation does today. Well, these are fair rules. Chapter 22. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray, and hide yourself from them. You shall in any case bring them again to your brother. You don't just ignore it as if it didn't happen. There's a responsibility. If you see animals lost, uh, you see somebody's car being stolen or whatever it might be, uh, you have a responsibility to help your brother. Uh, well, sheep get loose, cows get loose, horses get loose, animals get loose, dogs do. I don't want to even talk about cats. Nobody controls cats, but uh, but your neighbor's cat might wander around and be getting in trouble too. So you let them know. Doesn't matter what it is. And if your brother be not near you, or if you know him not, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall be with you until your brother seek after it, and you shall restore it to him again. So you didn't say finders, keepers. Uh, Even if you didn't even know whose it was, you put it up, put it in a pen, and fed it, watered it until that person who had lost it began to inquire around, has anybody seen this animal, and you would take care of it out of love for him. Uh, you know, you could just ignore it. I didn't see that, but no, you need to feed it. You need to take care of it, and you don't need to put it in your own freezer either. Then it would be stealing, in, in fact. In like manner shall you do with his ass, and so shall you do with his raiment, and with all lost thing of your brothers which he has lost, and you have found, shall you do likewise, You may not hide yourself. So, if you find a lost article, you're supposed to take care of it and hopefully get it back to the rightful owner. 
you feel that way. Has anybody here ever lost their wallet or their purse? Oh, Panic City. Maybe not just the $14 was in there, but what about your driver's license and your credit cards and all of your personal data and everything that's there that is about you? And oh, how we hope somebody honest finds it. And you know, I've had that happen. We may have, all of us at some time, had something like that happen, where it got returned and even the cash was still in it. Credit cards and everything's intact. Boy, what a relief that one is, that somebody cared enough and didn't just take all your stuff and then throw it in the trash. I've had that happen to me, too, a time or two. Well, God regulates this and how we react, how we love our neighbor as ourselves. You shall not see your brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him to lift them up again. Well, the Good Samaritan principle was clear back here. Um, Christ used that example of the Good Samaritan who took care of someone wounded or in trouble. It's getting increasingly in our society where people just go their way. They don't pay any attention. Oh, you got trouble? Too bad. I'm in a hurry. And uh, we need to be willing to stop. I know my experience in places like Montana or Alaska was in the summer. See ya. But in the wintertime, when it might be 20, 30, 40 below in either of those states, the first car that came by would stop because they knew that you could freeze to death. They didn't care in the summer. They figured, yeah, they'll... They'll get over it. But in the winter, they were more caring. But any time we see our neighbor in trouble, whether it be their animals or them or car problems or whatever, we should do what we can to help. At least uh, ask. I know it's getting more and more dangerous today, and especially women need to be careful uh, if you stop because you never know who's there and what they might try to do. And there are people who set these things up to take women in, or men for that matter. I had a cousin one time that had a guy pick him up, and uh, he took him out in the woods and was going to force him to do some abominable things, and somehow he escaped. But you never know who it is or what they might want. So we need to be careful, but, you know, we do have cell phones, and we can call and let somebody know that somebody has a need. And you can roll down your window a little bit and say, can I call someone? You know, We can do that much. How many of us have been stranded and seen cars just flying by? You know, and, Ah, someone stopped. Wow. Always a good feeling that somebody cared enough to at least inquire, isn't it? Well, God has that all back here. Verse 5, the woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all uh, that do so are abomination to the eternal, your God. We need to be sure that women wear clothes that look feminine and womanly, and men need to put away the high heels and blouses. Sorry, guys. we can't transgender dress. God wants us to wear clothes that pertain to us. You know, I've, I've said over the years that 
You know, that doesn't necessarily mean women should always wear dresses and men should always wear pants. Uh, back in those days, when this was written, everybody wore dresses, robes, whatever. But they didn't apparently have pants. So perhaps men even wore short dresses, mini skirts, if you will, because when David danced, his wife got real upset about that. So they had kilts or apparel that men could wear that were masculine and manly as opposed to the type of robes, perhaps, that women wore. And that would be true today. So how would you apply that principle? Uh, even, let's say, jeans. They have some that are cut, particularly for a woman's figure, and they have those that are cut for a man's physique. And I think that you could apply the principle even to something that simple. Wear those things which are made to fit a woman's body and for her to look more like a woman in rather than wearing uh, the type that are made for men. Uh, and men need to do the same thing. I don't think we need to wear ladies' type wranglers or, or, you know, we don't necessarily need pink pedal pushers either. Men don't generally do that in our society. Not that we can't wear color, we can. But I'm not going to wear a lady's blouse. I might wear a shirt, but it's going to be one that's cut for my physique, not for a woman's. What do I do with all the lack of space here and too much space there and all that stuff? Don't need it. No, we need to be, look like men if we're men, and we need to look like women if we're women. And wear things that show the difference. Our society is getting more unisex all the time, where they're trying to make it where everyone looks more alike. God doesn't like that. He made women to be women and men to be men, and you're not supposed to be in between somewhere, like we have so much confusion in our society today. Verse 6, if a bird's nest chanced to be before you in the way, in any tree or on the ground, uh, whether there be young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. But you shall in any wise let the mother go and take the young to you, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. So the respect that he's showing in this section that we should show to human beings and our neighbor's animals also pertains to wild animals, uh, that we are to show respect. And this could actually be a hunting regulation. You don't think of the Bible that way, but the Bible talks about hunting quite a bit and that, that the slothful man does not roast that which he takes in hunting in the Proverbs and he talks about how we can eat the deer and the elk, the, the heart and the roe and so on, the clean animals that are wild. But if you have, let's say, a wild bird and you are hungry and you need the eggs uh, or they have the young and you would take them, I don't know why you'd want to eat a baby bird, even if it's clean, it's only this big and, you know, time you peel the hide off, there's not much left. But uh, maybe you'd want to take them home and raise them uh, and eat them later. Or for whatever reason, maybe you wanted to eat the eggs. 
I like fresh laid eggs myself. If they got a bird in them, when I open them up, I tend to not want to, to go there. Uh, so I don't know exactly how to apply this in any case. Maybe they thought it was a delicacy in some cases, uh, like sushi. I don't know. But, uh, I, and I partly jest here. But the principle that we're getting at is that you don't kill off the whole flock. You save uh, the mother, at least, so she can have more offspring. In other words, there needs to be regulation in society so that next time you're looking for birds or bird eggs, there'll still be some. And if your neighbor is looking for birds or bird eggs or deer or whatever, there'll still be some. So God showed respect and honor even to birds and how they're handled. This would be clean birds, not ravens or, or uh, eagles or something, obviously, because you wouldn't be eating the, the young or the eggs in any case. But a regulatory thing to show that respect and to be sure that the species survived. Verse 8, when you build a new house, you shall make a wall for your roof, that you bring not blood upon your house if any man fall from there. So it was common then to have flat top roofs such as we see in the cliff dwellings and not just cliff dwellings but the various cultures of uh, ancient homes we see around in the southwestern United States. Most of them had flat roofs on them. I wonder why. Uh, I think that this book of Deuteronomy was written in this area and uh, the flat-topped houses and the remains of them are still around. But they had flat-topped roofs, and they would go up in the evening to sit in the cool breeze. Uh, they might cook, they might dry things up there, they might uh, entertain people, social life up on the, the roof or the top of the house. And uh, you needed to think of your neighbor. He might stumble and fall off the house, so... God even made a law, a rule, that you were to put a wall or a fence around the top of the house so your neighbor couldn't get drunk and fall off. Well, he wasn't supposed to get drunk anyway, but shouldn't stumble and fall off, let's say. Think of your neighbor and love him as yourself. You shall not sow your vineyard with different seeds, lest the fruit of your seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. I don't know that that was talking about GMOs especially. <laughs> They've started now mixing all, not just different seeds together in terms of hybrids. Now they're mixing animal DNA and all kinds of stuff in our wheat and our corn and various other products that are produced. Well, that's way out of line. But even mixing various seeds together and making different types of plants from it uh, may have also been uh, uh, forbidden of God. What is there needs to be complementary to each other, not something that will cause the weakening or the lessening of the quality of the product that is being produced. So God is really regulating every part of life here, isn't he? Our social life and how we fix our house so nobody can hurt themselves, hopefully. Uh, how we plant seeds so that people can remain healthy, what type of seed to use and not mixing in the wrong way, to be fair and thoughtful, in other words. 
Uh, you shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. Well, why? What's wrong? You got an ox and you got an ass. Why not let them both hook them up and let them plow? Well, because they have a different stride. They have a different way of pulling. They have different weight. And one is going to suffer at the expense of the other. So you put two oxen or you put two mules together to plow, not mix them together uh, in that way. So you're being fair to both animals that way. So one's not doing all the work while the other one gets a free ride or being put under an undue strain by the other animal. Well, God wants us to think these things through and be fair and logical in whatever we're doing. Just principles here. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, as of woolen and linen, together. So don't mix wool and cotton. Why? Well, there could be some very logical reasons. There are different strengths of material or different fibers, and uh, they cheapen the garment. The wool and the cotton might tend to pull apart. So he's saying, either have woolen or have cotton or have nylon. But he did not wish them to mix it together and cheapen what was there. I think we need to do what we can to try to follow that as close as possible in clothes, but in anything that has to do with quality is we need to try to have good quality as best we can afford. Now, maybe the best you can afford is Chinese quality, uh, you know. But in fact, that's about all you can buy anymore. But I just shudder when I look at some tires made in Chinese that I'm going to go down the freeway at 75 miles an hour on. Uh, that's scary. Uh, I've, I've assembled wagons that we were going to use that had, you know, just little children's wagons that had the tires made in China. And they wouldn't last a week. They just came apart. Well, there's no quality in most of what comes from over there. But we need to have an eye for quality of something that will last. And that's hard to do in this society today because we are a disposable society, disposable society. If it gets broken, we're not supposed to fix it. In fact, in many cases, you can't fix it. It's just gone, so you throw it away. I was reading about TVs uh, in an article the other day, and it says, don't buy them on Black Friday because these big corporations make deals with the manufacturers that they will cheapen the quality of that television and not put the normal components in it that they do, and it will fail quicker, and that's how they can sell them at such a low price, is they got them cheaper, and they are cheaper. So it said, don't buy them. And in fact, some of them, I named Vizio, I guess, one of them, is so cheap that if it does break, they basically can't be fixed. You just throw them away. That's the way our society is. And God did not intend it to be that way. He intended things to last. They even make our vehicles so that they're supposed to fall apart in three to four years, so we have to buy a new one. They could build them where they would last a long, long time and run for a long time. 
but they don't do it. Planned obsolescence is the name for it. Well, that's not a godly way. He would have us have quality, build things with quality, and then use them over a long period of time and not have to buy new ones all the time. But we're in an ungodly, backward society, and we have to deal with it in some ways. And sometimes uh, we simply don't have much of an option other than to use cheap-made junk because that's all there is. I kind of gave up when I bought a brand new Ford F-250 pickup, American-made. That was back when I was in Alaska and could afford it. But uh, I thought, well, I did good. I bought an American product. So I get up under it to put the license plate on, and I noticed the little license plate light, and it said, Made in Taiwan. And I thought, why fight it anymore? Yeah, it may be assembled in America, but the parts came from Mexico and China and Taiwan and you name it. So it's, you know, we are a nation that is under a curse now because we have not followed God's principles. We're going to get to it here fairly soon, too, the blessings and cursings that will come. So God has a reason for giving us these things, so that we might have things that last, that have good quality, that uh, aren't degraded and abused and become uh, poor quality, whether it be clothes or seeds, plants, animals, whatever. Always look and try to maintain good quality and be fair about it like the ox of the ass. Uh, verse 12, you shall make you fringes upon the four quarters of your vesture wherewith you cover yourself. They, uh, that's mentioned in other places where it was first instituted. He's summarizing here. But they had tassels or, or things to remind them of the law. And you get somebody once in a while now who says, well, we need to put tassels on the corners of our clothes to remind us of God's law. And... The principle still remains in the New Testament. But now, how do we re get reminded of God's law? Well, A, we read it. But B, we have His Holy Spirit to remind us at all times what is right and what is wrong. And by studying His Word and having His Spirit to guide our minds, it should be a constant reminder. We... They had to have the Ten Commandments on the doorpost of their house. They had to wear this to remind them of the law. We have the Spirit of God to remind us. Somebody says, well, I think we ought to wear those. I said, well, if you don't have God's Spirit, you should. But if you do, it shouldn't be necessary. Uh, so the principle is still there. Always remember God's law and His way of life. You... <coughs> You don't necessarily need that physical reminder, but you have the Spirit dwelling in your mind to keep you ever conscious of what is right and what is wrong. All right, let's finish, if I can, this chapter up. <clears throat> if any man take a wife and go into her and hate her, and give occasions of speech against her, and bring up an evil name upon her, gossip about her, in other words, and say, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. 
Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city in the gate. So God said that when you get married, you should, man and woman, be virgins. And he constructed a woman's body in such a way that the first time uh, she knows a man in that way, there is blood involved from the hymen being broken. So on the wedding night, she was to take a towel or a piece of cloth and make sure that that was used so that she would have proof then that she had been a virgin. <clears throat> and the damsel's father shall say to the elders, I gave my wife, my daughter, to this man to wife, and he hated her. And lo, he has accused her, saying, I found not your daughter a maid, yet, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. So the man decides, I don't like this girl. Uh, I'm going to accuse her of not being a virgin. Well, she had the proof right there or her parents did, that she had been. And she, after the wedding night, would take that and give it to her parents as proof that she had been a virgin. This was very important to God, and important to the individuals involved. And the elders of that city shall take that man and chastise him. They shall immerse him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the damsel, Immerse is a word I'd never heard before, old English, I guess, but it, it, in Hebrew it's anash, which means to fine him or to punish him uh, by making him spit up a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the damsel because he has brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not put her away all his days. Now, in chapter 24, we'll find that there were circumstances for almost any cause where a man could put away a woman under those circumstances. But if she was a virgin and he lied about it, he could never put her away. He was stuck with her forever, whether he liked her or not. So that made him hear and fear a little bit before he would make a false accusation. Uh, verse 20, But if this thing be true, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then shall they bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she has wrought folly in, it, folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So shall you put evil away from among you. And then other young single people would hear and fear as well. So, this was love, again, for the society as a whole, for the culture, that this be carried out so others would hear and fear about repeat the errors. Now, verse 22, If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall you put away evil from Israel. So, adultery was a death penalty as well. And that would make people hear and fear before they indulged. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed or engaged to a husband, and a man find her in the city and force her or rape her, then she shall bring then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die, the damsel because she didn't holler or scream, 
being in the city where she could be heard, and the man because he has humbled his neighbor's wife, or she who would become a neighbor's wife at some point in time. So you were even to honor the husband-to-be, not just the current husband. <coughs> you know, that's the way it is with a lot of young men. They'll defile as many girls as they can possibly uh, do, and the, but they, then they, when they get ready to marry a woman or a girl, they want one that hasn't been used and abused. They don't care about anybody else. They just want what they want. That's the human carnal way. So if she was in the city and nobody heard her scream, she was to be stoned as well. But if a man find a betrothed damsel, someone engaged in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. It would be... Uh, hard to prove. She could scream her loudest, and if no one was around to hear her, then how are you going to hold her accountable? You have to just blame him. <clears throat> to the damsel you shall do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death, for as when a man rises against his neighbor and slays him, even so is this matter. Like we read earlier, you know, the city uh, had to be concerned about it and ask forgiveness, but how are you going to prove something with no uh, witness, with no one around to hear her scream. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, now this was first it talked about somebody who was engaged to another man and was forced, whether it be in the city or in the field. It was a different circumstance if she was uh, not married or not Engaged, Verse 28. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found out, then the man that lay with her shall give to the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he has humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. So if she wasn't married or betrothed and he took advantage of her, uh, he had to marry her and could never put her away. Verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife nor discover his father's skirt. So incest is also out. Uh, that was a form of incest apparently in 1 Corinthians 5 and Paul directed that that person be disfellowshipped for it. Well, I'm out of time, so let's stop there. Uh, but it does show the way in which order in a society or a culture is kept so that love might be had for all, even though individuals had to be punished severely in order that uh, sin and crime be put out of Israel. So actually, they were, these were laws of love, even though they sound pretty tough, but we have to apply it today uh, when we come across circumstances, uh, apply mercy, love, forgiveness, and yet even in the New Testament, God says he chastens every son whom he loves. So it is love to chasten, to punish, to take away privilege, 
to make children accountable for the things that they do and the attitudes that they have. It doesn't have to be murder, it's just disrespectful or rebellious that even brings a penalty. And in this case, it brought the death penalty. So let's be sure as parents that we find the right balance between showing mercy at times, but also in making sure our children learn responsibility and accountability so that when they are out from under our roof, they have learned to be responsible, accountable, upstanding adults. That's the whole point of child-rearing, is to teach them from the time they're zero days of age until they're 18 or 20 to be upstanding and responsible. And to do that, you have a tough chore ahead of you in any case. So God lays down uh, rules and laws, and even in the New Testament, certain chastenings that are to be done to be sure that society stays safe, so that it stays in peace. And that's why in the millennium, you're going to hear a voice behind you that says, this is the way, walk in it, don't go do that. You'll be stopped before you even get it done. So that will have a lot to do with attitude, will it not? A man is shown that he will not follow God's ways, his rules, his direction that leads to peaceful life in a society. We prove that from Adam and Eve down until today. Mankind cannot rule himself. Therefore, we will be made to do it right in the thousand years of peace. And if we do the wrong thing, or start to do the wrong thing, somebody will say, uh uh no, don't do that. And if we don't go up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, God will just shut the rain off. Well, he has his ways of making sure then that people follow his ways. He's going to be tough about it. He really is. It'll be a time of peace and love only because God makes sure the rules are followed. That's the only way you can have a peaceful society, is everybody follows the rules.